So my first question for you is what happened? The arms industry uh, saw a multi-billion dollar bonanza, which was converting the militaries in the former communist bloc to be NATO compatible. Uh, and that's what happened. Now, every politician and statesperson that I spoke with, I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of anyone who advocated the expansion of NATO. Uh, I mean, the tragedy was that Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and we forget in the early years of uh, Putin, there was an attempt, uh, a very serious attempt on the part of Russia to build a joint security pact. Uh, we can't forget the trauma that Russia endured in the Second World War when the Nazis invaded uh, all the way to Moscow and devastated uh, that, that uh, you know, whole swaths of the Soviet Union. Of course, that was repeated a century earlier by Napoleon. Uh, you know, they have legitimate fears of being encircled. And uh, this was the Tehran conference, the primary issue between Stalin, uh, Roosevelt, and Churchill was carving up Eastern Europe in a way to protect the Soviet Union, to make it feel secure. And both the Americans and the British realized that as a necessity. This was also true in 1989. Uh, but unfortunately, that was completely abandoned with, uh, and there were a series of agreements. So it, you had the agreement not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, then the Clinton administration, and of course it did. Uh, there's now a missile base in Poland, 100 miles from uh, the, the uh, Russian border. Uh, Clinton then promised that uh, he would not Station NATO troops in Eastern Europe. We now have thousands of NATO troops uh, in Eastern Europe. There was the, of course, the Minsk agreement that uh, nobody ever uh, honored. Uh, there was a promise not to intervene in the internal affairs of border countries like the Ukraine. It wasn't honored. So, uh, what has happened, of course, is preemptive war, which is under post Nuremberg law is a criminal war of aggression. There's no way around it. Uh, and and Russia is guilty, uh, but they were baited and they took the bait and they pulled the trigger. And that's kind of the tragedy of what's happened. So were you surprised? I wasn't. So a lot of people were predicting that uh, he wouldn't go beyond uh, the separatist regions. I think he overreached. I think he should have stayed in the separatist regions. But I wasn't surprised for this reason. I, I spent 20 years covering right. war and I'm well aware of information or disinformation as being a fundamental component to war. So for instance, in the first Gulf War, when I was with uh, the Marine Corps on the border with Kuwait, uh, there was a huge propaganda, a black uh, kind of information campaign to make the Iraqis think that it would be a seaborne, a coastal invasion, and it worked. Uh, they played around with days, you know, so the Iraqis had, were thrown off balance as to when it would happen. This is always true in war. And uh, after the Nazis took Alsace-Lorraine, they mounted these speakers and had a huge peace offensive. And so I didn't believe anything coming out of the Kremlin. Uh, am I surprised that he did it? I'm surprised that he did it because I think it's really counterproductive. Uh, and uh, uh, um, so on that, from a kind of strategic or tactical sense, yes. Uh, but I wasn't surprised that he was lying because that's what every country on the inception of a war does. Right. 
Um, you you quote in your article, uh, you quote a diplomatic, uh, uh, what, what, uh, diplomatic a cable. cable. Yeah, yeah, a cable that was obtained and released by WikiLeaks. Right. Um, and it was from, it was dated February 1st, 2008, um, written from Moscow and addressed to the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff or... NATO European Union Cooperative National Security Council, Russia, Moscow, Political Collective, Secretary of Defense, and Secretary of State. And you say that there was this understanding that expanding NATO risks an eventual conflict with Russia, especially over Ukraine. Um, well, that's all in that cable. I mean, that right. was that was the general understanding. So I yeah. could have quoted George Kennan or all sorts sure. of other people, but the cable is kind of interesting because they actually talk about uh, the uh, how divisive NATO membership it would be to the Ukraine, what it would do to domestic politics, that it would create an opening for Russian intervention. This is 2008. Uh, and uh, that the Russian uh, establishment would be encouraged to meddle in internal affairs in the Ukraine, and the U.S. would then uh, meddle with opposing forces. And this would put, in their words, U.S. and Russia in a classic confrontational posture. And that's exactly where we are. Right. It, it says in the memo, right, uh, not only does Russia perceive encirclement by NATO and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences, which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, uh, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. Um and then you 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 describe how it was um, for these reasons, right? Among these reasons that uh, Obama blocked arms sales to Ukraine. Yeah, which was which, then was, which was prudent and smart, right? And then, of course, reversed by Trump, and right. then by Biden, because you had in this kind of unbelievable, but surely by now, I guess, believable and predictable move. But you saw these, you know, Democrats. I mean, who. You're, you're like the last person to be surprised by this, but all these Democrats up in arms and accusing, you know, Trump of being uh, yeah. a, a traitor because he was because they wanted him to to reverse Obama's position, which he ultimately did. And then so did Biden. Um, wh why do you think uh, Biden is is arming? I mean, why do you think Obama, I guess, took that prudent decision that that well, then, because they, that uh, he understood that it was dumping gasoline on the conflict. Right. But uh, why do you think? Uh, well, because Biden, Biden failed at everything else. I mean, uh, his presidency is a disaster. Uh, uh, his uh, opinion poll ratings are in the tank. Uh, you know, his bill back better bill is gutted. He All of his promises, like forgiving student loans and raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour have been forgotten. Uh, the moratorium on foreclosures, the extended child tax credit, all the assistance that people got have, is now being terminated. Uh, so uh, what's better than a war? Uh, now we got the EU just announced that they're going to allocate hundreds of millions of euros to buy weapons. Germany just said it would triple its defense budget. Biden has asked Congress for $6.4 billion dollars for the Ukraine. And this is on top of the 650 million in military aid that they've given the Ukraine. It's absolute insanity, especially because Russia is a nuclear power, as Putin reminded everyone. Uh, and 
you know, these these kind of merchants of death who are making tons of money off of this and made tons of money off of expanding NATO are, are you know, at this point, I mean, over dramatic, but they're flirting with a nuclear holocaust. It's just nuts. And what about um, your experience reporting? I want to know what that what insight that gave has given you into what it looks like when people are armed uh, to fight in these wars without a lot of training. Like what experiences that you saw um, do you feel like it's important for people to know about who haven't done reporting? Well, first of all, handing out automatic weapons to people who don't know one end of an AK-47 from another is uh, just suicidal. So I covered the war in Kosovo. And at one point, I was in northern Albania with the Kosovo Liberation Army. And all these kids, Albanian kids who were working in Germany and restaurants and stuff, were showing up in northern Albania. And they'd shove a weapon in their hands, give them two days of training. And I went with them with a group of 600 people up over the mountains. uh, And they were just slaughtered uh, because they don't know what they're doing. So uh, you know, there. Uh, you know, the, the media loves this kind of heroic narrative of mothers making Molotov cocktails, but the dark reality is that you, you're just setting them up to be killed. Uh, you've turned people who have no uh, training or understanding of, uh, you know, how to wage warfare into targets. It's I find it just criminal. And. Um... Do you feel like any reporters out there in remotely mainstream outlets ever speak to that? I haven't seen it. I mean, it you know, war creates a kind of jingoism and the media is the worst. Uh, they create these simplistic narratives. Uh, you're right. They don't talk about the Putin's, I think, very legitimate uh, grievances uh, and uh, it, Putin becomes Hitler. Everybody becomes right. Hitler. Saddam Hussein was Hitler. Whoever we fight becomes Hitler, and we all become Saving Private Ryan. And uh, but it has nothing to do with the reality on the ground. But that narrative, that kind of mythic narrative uh, in war, it's what people want to hear. It's what the networks want to broadcast. It's what the public eats up. It's very hard to counter it. Right. And keep um, your job. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And can you, for people who don't know, um, can you share about your experience at the New York Times and why it ended? Well, I'd spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I realized, like all Arabists, that the invasion of Iraq was arguably the worst strategic decision in American history uh, for all the reasons we now know. Uh, and But to, to say that was um, a career killer. I mean, other friends of mine who worked in the Middle East, and opinion wasn't any different from mine. They were just, uh, you know, smart enough not to open their mouths. Um, so, and it was all careerism, it had nothing to do with the reality. Most of the people they trotted out to feed the, you know, narrative of Baathists embracing us as liberators, et cetera, uh, didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, and if you didn't feed that dominant narrative, even though I had that kind of experience, including the fact that I speak Arabic, you were just shut out. Uh, that's what kind of always happens, uh, you know, especially especially in wartime. So I was uh, booed off of a commencement stage right. and told by the Times, no, I couldn't speak about the war anymore. And I left. We actually there's speaking of the media and uh, their complicity, there is uh, an interesting clip brad could we play the clip from the fox news fox sunday 
uh, you, you'll probably get a kick out of this. Um, when you invade a sovereign nation, that is... Okay, so this is none other than Condoleezza Rice being interviewed uh, on Fox. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I'd, I'd agree. it is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. So you well, you kind of can't make this up, right? Oh, it's, well, she just made a case for why she should be in prison. Yeah, Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, yeah exactly. Of course. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, preemptive war is a crime. Uh, it, it is, and it's not excusable when we do it. And it's, I'm also don't excuse the Russians when they do it. Right. But she, I wonder how she would, uh, I mean, I have no idea if anyone would ever ask her how to justify those two things, to reconcile those two positions. Um, she's pretty good at pseudo pseudo intellectual babble, though, so I'm sure she she'd pull it off. Well, nicely. she would never. I mean, the journalists are complicit. Come on, right? Exactly. No one would ever ask her that, you right? Can't, you can't get on Fox or CNN if you're going to ask a you know a real question, right? And or, or, or or raise a real point, right? Uh, there's also another. There's a lot of misinformation um, that's going around. I wanted to show you this one tweet that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure who this is. It's um, FR News. Let's see. Uh, Brad, I'm going to put in this tweet just because I want to show. Hold on. Let me let me open this up. Then we'll take some of the comments. But yeah, so that was Condoleezza Rice. Obviously, everyone knows that she's was help, helped uh, do to 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 Iraq. The thing that she's saying is illegal to do that Putin did. Uh, here, this is interesting. So this. FR News Now, uh, I'm not sure who they are, honestly, but they tweeted this thing, this video, and it has, you know, 880,000 views on Twitter. And they claim that this video uh, is of a, um, they claim that this video is of a girl, um, telling her, sorry, this is a video uh, of a, a brave little girl confronting Putin's army, uh, says, go back to your country. And then the hashtag is defend Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, Russia, war, Ukraine. Those are all the hashtags. So, Brad, could you zoom in on that? Sorry, I thought I had uh, added that in. Okay, so, yeah, so zoom in before we see my response. I just want to show this thing. So, go back to your country, brave little girl condemns, uh, confronts invading Putin's army. Okay, can you play the the video? Okay, so this is of course uh, shockingly not uh, winter, not February Ukraine. Uh, if you could scroll up, Brad. Uh, I, I, a lot of people respond to this, but, uh, I said news, you know, eight high FR news. Now, are you going to update this and explain your, uh, you confuse Ukraine with Palestine. It's an understandable mistake, given how much this looks like winter in Ukraine. That's, uh, Tamimi yelling at an Israeli soldier. So they took this image of a woman, of a, of a now young woman who was, I guess, a little girl yelling at an Israeli soldier. 
and are pretending that this is happening right now in Russia. Um, and these things are going viral. But that that does it is an interesting comparison because uh, the the language of liberation, the discourse around liberation and freedom and sovereignty that you see around Russia and Ukraine is very different from the one that you see about Israel Palestine. Uh, yeah, because Ukrainians are those? Ukrainians are white, right? You know, yeah. I mean, I I dealt with this in Bosnia. So what what about Yemenis? What about Palestinians? Yes, there's not a lot uh, there of is a racial flags. overtone, of, yeah. you know, black and brown bodies don't count. Yeah. So uh, people don't know anything about the Ukraine, of course. Right. Uh, I don't know. It looks to me like a good excuse to not waste your time on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, but but as you said, I mean, there's all these examples. People talk that there is a, a European um, journalist saying that uh you know, this is so different from him because these are blonde hair and blue eyed people. The, Alan McLeod uh, compiled a good good thread on Twitter. One of the good reasons to be on Twitter where he went through some of them. But um, what other lessons do you have from reporting? Well, the um, most important lesson is you don't you can't once you begin to employ this kind of wholesale industrial violence, you can't determine where it's going to go and what it's going to lead to. And what really frightens me is the pumping in of the, these weapons into the Ukraine, which will just fuel the conflict, of course. And uh, who knows where it will lead, especially when you couple it with sanctions that are clearly designed to destroy the Putin government. That's their goal, is right. to destroy Putin. So, I mean, you see it. Putin is really uh, enraged. And I, I just don't see how this is productive. Uh, to anyone, to the Ukrainians, you know, they won't fight for the Ukrainians, of course. Right. Same thing with Georgia. They pump weapons into Georgia. Uh, but boy, the, a bloodbath, sure. And they'll keep it going as long as they can. Uh, and, and that's what I just find unconscionable. Uh, there should be a moratorium on weapons. There should be, I think, uh, Moscow has every right to, uh, especially given uh, the number of countries in Eastern Europe that are now NATO allies, they have every right to ask that the Ukraine remain neutral. I, I, I just don't think that's an unreasonable request. They have every right to ask that NATO troops be removed from Eastern Europe. They have every right to dismantle that missile base. I mean, we almost had a nuclear showdown with the Soviet Union over missiles in Cuba. That was 90 miles off the coast of Florida. So uh, I, you know, part of the job as a foreign correspondent is always, uh, that why I saw it as my job, is to step into the shoes of another people, another culture, another country, and explain how they think and why they think the way they do uh, to an American audience. But that, again, is kind of the death of news. Uh, foreign correspondents don't exist. When they do exist, they're not multilingual. They're not based in the region, usually. They're parachuted in, and they repeat the kind of jingoism that their editors, their public, and their advertisers want to hear, but it only makes everything worse. Right. Um, someone uh, asked about NATO expansion. Um, I think they want to know, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, you, you write about it, obviously, in your piece, um, but, but maybe a question to ask is why, I think a lot of people don't understand why NATO expansion is, they think of NATO as a, a defensive entity. Um, can you explain why NATO is, is uh, threatening and dangerous? 
Well, because it's encircling Russia, and uh, it is Russia perceives NATO with much justification as a threat. Uh, they they feel hemmed in. In I mean, why did we perceive missiles in Cuba as a threat? How would we feel if Canada or Mexico uh, were suddenly uh, host to thousands of Russian troops with military bases, including missile bases along our border? I, I don't think it's an unreasonable uh, fear on the part of the Russians, especially given their history. Uh, it was totally unnecessary. I mean, it was only done for the arms market. It was only done for the weapons manufacturers who've not only made a killing, but are now making more of a killing off of the conflict in the Ukraine. The only reason we stuck around in Afghanistan, we know that from the Afghan papers, everybody knew it was a fiasco, was because the private contractors and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin were making money hand over fist. And, uh, you know, these people need a conflict. Uh, they don't, they're totally irresponsible. Uh, and if it's not Russia, it'll be China. They don't care as long as they can keep selling weapons. And uh, I mean, our, our our military budget is what nine or ten times more than the next ten countries combined. It's an insanity. I mean, we have yeah. we build nuclear weapons. It's not based on effectiveness. This was in the fifties. It's based on production capacity, so that we can wipe out the same. Soviet city 20 times. I mean, it's just nuts.